Nicholas Bornholz of Capitaling, delighted to welcome you to the second panel of uh, our Jones Act Forum today. Uh, this panel is focusing on M&A, investing and financing opportunities in the Jones Act space. Huge topic, a lot of activity, and we have with us uh, a, a panel with uh, distinguished uh, speakers. Uh, I will uh, let uh, Christopher Belisle of uh, Watson, Farley and Williams, who is our moderator, introduce our panelists. I'd like to thank uh, Chris and everybody for joining, and of course, our participants. Uh, just one note on logistics. Uh, anyone can submit a question, and you're welcome to, during the uh, panel discussion through the Q&A button at, at the bottom of your screen. So the questions will be addressed by the panelists at the end of their discussion. Uh, if you would like also to send uh, any uh, questions to webinars at capitallink.com, again, webinars at capitallink.com, and we will feed them to the panelists so they can get back to you. And this session will be available for replay, uh, accessed upon demand shortly after the, uh, the live panel uh, discussion. And with that, I'll turn it over to Chris. And I'd like to thank uh, Will, Alex, Matthew, and Kevin for, for being with us, and of course, all the uh, attendees. Thanks, Nicholas. Um, as Nicholas said, I'm Chris Belial from Watson, Farley, and Williams. I'm in the New York office of the firm, um, and we are a firm that uh, specializes uh, in transportation, energy, and infrastructure. Uh, I don't think there's much more to say about me because really you're here to see what the panelists have to say about this. And um, I'm here with Will Frew from Oak Tree Capital, Kevin O'Hara at AMA Capital Partners, Matt Thompson at RBC Capital Markets, and Alex Parker at Rose K. Um, I think I should just uh, start out by saying um, this is a pretty diverse topic, but we want to delve into really what investors and lenders look to in the Jones Act space. And to start out, I'm going to ask everyone to introduce themselves, starting with Matt, with Will, sorry, because you're in my top left corner, and um, and tell us how you are involved in the Jones Act space and what you see going forward. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so uh, I guess good good morning, still East Coast time. Uh, my name's Will Frew. I'm a senior vice president uh, for Oak Tree Capital's transportation infrastructure strategy. Uh, we're a dedicated strategy under the umbrella of, of Oak Tree Capital that focuses on investment in uh, transportation infrastructure as assets uh, across air, land, and sea sectors, uh, uh, primarily just in, in North America is where we focus. Uh, I personally have been with the firm since 2014, and I helped to lead the efforts uh, within the Jones Act, among other uh, sectors of, of, of our coverage, uh, and including the team's investment in RAND Logistics, which is the largest bulk uh, product transportation provider on, on the Great Lakes. Okay. Um, thanks, Will. Kevin? Uh, AMA Capital Partners is a boutique investment bank focused solely on the transportation sector, which for us means shipping and offshore and, and, and the rail side. Um, you know, we, we have a, a broad product range, everything from restructurings to M&A, um, capital raise, strategic advisory, a lot of that which has been in, in the Jones Act space over the years. Thank you. Um, Matt, we'll go to you next. Uh, Matt Thompson, RBC Capital Markets. Uh, I've been an advisor for 25 years. Uh, did my first Jones Act deal in 1998. 
run the transportation and logistics practice across a multimodal platform, but have always done a lot in Jones Act. It holds a special place in my heart, a few deals a year for the last 25. Uh, it's got a little experience in this sector. Just a bit. Um, and Alex, uh, can you tell us about what you do and who you are? Thanks, Chris. Rose Key is a sponsor of transactions. Um, we worked across aircraft leasing, truck leasing, and recently acquired a Jones Act platform. Uh, we built out a management team over the past 18 months uh, and are now in the tanker space, but actively looking at other opportunities to invest across the Jones Act. Okay, thank you. Well, um, just uh, to give a little description of the sector, the Jones Act is a uh, involves a diverse group of owners and operators in various capacities from tanker owners to OSVs to tugs and barges uh, and as as Matt touched upon a little bit um, intermodal transportation as well um, so they're all connected by this one statute that uh, that puts hurdles on investment or or uh, ownership but also keeps a uh, very focused and um, and tight group of operators uh, in the money. Uh, I'm wondering from your perspective, and we'll start, let's, let's start with Will, since you are in my upper left-hand corner. Has there been an uptick in M&A that you can see in the sector in the past few years? And what do you think is the reason for it? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I guess I'll just start by saying, you know, we've certainly been focused on on the sector more over the last few years, just just within my my team uh, personally, and, and and it does seem like there has been uh, a, a broader focus amongst uh, a more diverse range of investors uh, in, in in the space, and so uh, we've certainly uh, seen a number of opportunities. I think we've seen an uptick in interest amongst a broader set. Of, of investor groups and and there's probably a few uh, there's probably a few factors that are contributing to that um, one just just greater uh, education about the Jones Act and the types of businesses that that exist in the in the Jones Act itself and then there's I think there's also a piece of it of of you know family-owned businesses succession planning trying to figure out what's what's next for for ownership and that's probably leading to um, you know to, to, to more activity um I'll move over to Matt and, and I'm going to get Kevin's and Alice's uh, views on this too, but has your experience been similar, Matt, and do you see any other drivers for this? It has been. I would say the additional driver, you know, from doing a few deals a year for 25 years, uh, the uptick I feel like over the last 24 months has been driven in part by the innate cyclicality of a lot of the different sectors within the Jones Act. And typically, M&A transactions happen early in an upcycle. It's very hard to sell a business that's trending down where you're trying to explain that we've stopped, it's going to turn, versus a business that often is in a longer cycle industry where you're early in that cycle can point pretty clearly to why the next several years are going to be better. And as you broadly look at the Jones Act, which clearly makes up a lot of very different businesses, I would say on whole, what we are seeing is an up cycle in the sector, early stages, and that makes it easier to come to market to find buyers, which isn't lost on sellers. We often have a lot of private equity, families, others who at different points are looking to transact. 
And those windows like the one that we're in today often are the times where you see an uptick in M&A. Thank you. Um, Kevin, building upon what Matt said, do you see any particular portion of the Jones Act or any particular assets in the sector that look like they're more up on a um, an upturn and maybe a better target or a more palatable target for investors? Sure. No, we, we've seen, um, you know, besides the obvious wind market that the that previous panel covered quite a bit, um, we also see a lot of activity coming out of the OSV space now. Um, now that most of those companies have been through a, um, you know, a process through a bankruptcy in some cases, uh, you're seeing vessels that are that are being reactivated. Um, some are being sold, changing hands, and some are going to overseas markets. So, other than the kind of the steady um, business of the of the coastwise trade, where I think you always see some level of transactions, I would add the um, you know the offshore supply market off to that as well. Thanks, Alex. Do you have anything else to to add on that, and where you see growth coming in the sector? I echo what everyone has said about cyclicality and the diverse segments of uh, the Jones Act. I think oftentimes people say Jones Act broadly, but each underlying business has completely different fundamentals. Uh, and so it is imperative. We, uh, as, as buyers and sponsors, we like to buy at the rock bottom. So uh, we bought during the height of COVID. Um, but that is, you know, we do think that there's a lot of room to grow. And as you look at order books and backlogs, I uh, think that the existing assets are trending higher from a residual value perspective. Let's let's um, let's delve into that a little bit more on the residual value issue and maybe other factors that make a a particular asset or set of assets more of a target for investment um, from your standpoint. Uh, is is the asset value and potential residual value more important than, let's say, the operations and long-term contracts for the vessels that you're looking at? I'll start with you, Alex, and then we'll work our way back around the group. Yeah, I think you know there are some great examples where on, on one business, how many yards can produce a certain type of asset? Let's say a coal barge um, for a million dollars or less. The, the universe of people that can participate in that is, is relatively high. For ESG reasons, that, that could be a challenging asset. Conversely, a $100 million, $200 million vessel, the number of yards that can create that vessel is a lot slimmer. Um, and so the contracts and the people that are credits, you would build a $200 million plus, $100 million plus vessel for are, are radically different. And so where we spend a lot of our time is a little bit more of that durable cash flow um, and, and Fortune 100 off-takers. So our focus has been to date larger assets where you're able to deploy material capital into not thousands of, of vessels, but one or two, and the barriers to entry are relatively high. Okay, thanks. Matt, do you see any other factors going into uh, the primary thought process for an investment decision in this space? Yeah, I think cash yield is very important today. Um, and I think we're going to talk a bit about rates and the impact of higher debt rates on the returns that are expected from a, from a cash yield. But I think a lot of the deals that we've done, we've had buyers very focused on what was the free cash flow going to be or what is the free cash flow going to be on that business. 
in the next 12, 24, 36 months. So it's really looking at the characteristics of being able to turn that asset into cash flow quickly after investment. That is another factor that certainly played into a lot of the deals that we've done over the last several years. Okay. Um, Kevin, are you, when you're advising on these, are you looking at both of those factors or you're looking more into the length of contracts and uh, how far out the, uh, the income will flow? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a mix of those, kind of all of the above. You know, the the, the fact that you have um, yards relatively full, you've seen a lot of inflation in the capex side, which I think points to to Alex's point of residual values getting an uplift. Um, you know, the ESG factor, where similar to international markets, there's a hesitancy to invest in new tonnage until there's a little bit more clarity on what types of fuels people need to use. And you know, kind of at some point we'll segue into the rates, but you know, that when when interest rates are rising, you don't necessarily get that kind of multiple uplift that you may get in a in a lower interest rate environment. So I do think that the you know long-term contracts and the, the cash flows um, to Matt's point are are key here. Okay. And Will, I guess building upon what Kevin just said, is there a, a tension from private equity investor between private equity and the actual vessel owners about what long-term targets are compared to short-term. I mean, if, if, if interest rates, interest rates will fluctuate throughout time, but contract rates um, may be more steady, especially if you're getting into long-term contracts. How does that um, play into your investment strategy? Yeah, I, I don't always think that there's necessarily tension um, you know, especially if there's transactions that are driven, as I, as I noted earlier, by, you know, succession or family planning. What, what I think is important is as you're taking, uh, you know, ownership with, with new sponsor investment, that there's alignment of interest between the parties, both from a, from a strategy, from a capital and from a, from a, you know, timeline investment horizon perspective. Uh, you know, as, as we're looking um, you know, at businesses and, you know, I think, I think that alignment can come through what you've seen in the market from sponsors. You're starting to see some, some longer duration fund strategies and, and even some perpetual strategies, um, that have been gaining momentum that, that can better align, uh, sponsorship with, with, with ownership. Uh, and then when it comes to, you know, the contracts and the assets themselves. I, I think it's really market market specific. You know, we're, we're as, you know, as I noted, we're an infrastructure investor. And, and if we're making, um, you know, a significant investment in, in a vessel that that is, uh, you know, high cost to build, obviously line of sight into that revenue profile going forward is better. Absent that, uh, what we where we find value is, is long-term customer uh, relationships, you know, renewals of, of contracts, consistent uh, rate increases, contract to contract without significant variability in rates. And, and that is where, you know, absent those longer term contracts, we, we can get comfortable, um, you know, from an investment decision perspective. Um, I'm coming back to Matt. Matt, from a from a debt standpoint, um, from a with a um, an investment in a Jones Act operator, does 
private equity or any kind of investment give a better platform for um, for smaller companies to get better rates on their their um, their borrowings or how does that that work? Uh, do you, what do you bring to the table for finding finding debt for these Jones Act operators? Yeah, look, I think it's helpful to contextualize the, the Jones Act operators are suffering just like the rest of the economy in terms of having access to debt at the rate profile that they used to have. Broadly speaking, the syndicated debt market is, is you know, creaking open, but, but slowly and at rates that are much more expensive than I think anyone would have imagined a year ago. When I think about going out and finding debt for transactions, which is where we typically are involved is around that M&A, what we do find is private equity funds do have better access to capital in general. The reason for that is because they're often putting in a pretty substantial amount of equity behind the debt. So it's a lot easier to go to a debt guy and say, hey, would you please give us some money? We believe so much in this business. We're going to be behind you 100% with our equity. And so that's a much easier story than when you're talking about a private company. Now, a lot of these private companies in the Jones Act have long established relationships with banks going back decades, often family you know, owned businesses, multi-generational, where they've done a terrific job as operators and custodians for the bank's capital. Those sorts of deals we continue to see being renewed. I think where you start having the issue is the smaller Jones Act operator looking to borrow, to expand their business, to maybe do their own M&A, to grow their business inorganically, where there isn't fresh capital coming in, it makes it much more difficult for that operator than, for example, someone who's bringing in capital to sit behind that bank or debt investor. And I think that's incredibly important in today's environment, where debt is just harder to come by across the board. Thank you. Um, Alex, I, I, Matt's comments bring up to me the idea of uh, whether consolidation in this space is is a um, a good strategy for an operator, and if so, what PE provides to help with that kind of growth? Yeah, I think um, when you look at these assets and companies, it comes down to price. So the price that you're willing to pay for a company and getting to the cash yield and fixed charge coverages that you're able to, to pay for these businesses and equity returns, which have obviously blown out with rates. If you're able to get a certain return on first lien debt, well, you better add a significant margin to sit behind that, to Matt's point. And so now, uh, despite a, a rosier outlook, uh, the headwinds that are coming with rates and investor and lender uh, return expectations is material. And so when you're running a net present value or discounted cash flow, adding 500 basis points to any calculation is material. And so I believe that there is going to be M&A. I still think that there is a material disconnect between where buyers and sellers are willing to transit and how much folks are willing to pay in a forward multiple of earnings for inevitable cyclicality. And so deriving capital structures, you know, and it was touched on by Kevin, people restructure, right? Every time someone restructures and we came in through restructuring, that bank is going to, you know, look twice next time and whatever the cause for that is. And so 
it's incumbent upon sponsors to have prudent capital structures that are durable, that can withstand inevitable maintenance cycles, capital reinvestment cycles, cyclicality and rates, uh, and what have you. And when you factor those things in, it, it isn't a necessarily linear business all the time. And so we design and we expect return profiles that are commensurate with the risk that you're taking. Okay, thank you. Um, Kevin, I'm going to ask you about uh, consolidation in light of what Alex has just said. Do you, do you think that consolidation is a valid and helpful strategy for smaller Jones Act operators? And do you think that is going to be a focus in the market going forward? I, I do, Chris. You know, Kirby's been doing it for as long as anybody can remember, right? It's it's impressive if you look at their presentations, how many companies they've rolled up. And I still think they're probably 35, 40%. Um, there are plenty of markets and sub-markets uh, out there within the Jones Act that have the potential for, for that kind of consolidation as well. Um, you, you do run into some limits. You know, the container trade is not the biggest trade in the world. Um, the Jones Act focused container trade, and, and there's only so many MRs. Um, but there is, it's, it's amazing the scope and the amount of equipment uh, on, on the coastwise trade on, in the oil products and, and now in the emerging wind trade. There, there will be um, beyond the headlines of the WTIVs and the SOVs. There, there are just anytime you look at any of this, um, any of the construction being done uh, on the offshore wind farm side, you'd be amazed at how much equipment is needed for each one of those projects. Thank you. Um, well, I think we're going to move on to another topic, unless you have something you want to add to about that issue. Uh, actually, you know, the one thing that I would say about consolidation within the industry, and, and you know, as everyone has said, it kind of depends market to market. But one benefit that that we've certainly seen is that with with consolidation and increased density of of a fleet or vessels can actually increase the capacity of, of a market. And so it, it actually can, can have the reverse effect of what some people typically expect from consolidation of, of being you know, potentially anti-competitive, but actually um, beneficial for, for the customers by, by having a denser fleet, a denser network to be able to, to serve and shorten kind of empty legs uh, be, between moves. I, I can see that, you know, uh, going back to what Kevin had said about Kirby, certainly in the, the river transport, um, do you see that in any other sectors, like uh, maybe possibly the Great Lakes? Yeah, certainly seeing the Great Lakes, uh, you know, just for, for RAND logistics where we're invested, that, that was built through most recently through a combination of legacy RAND logistics and then American Steamship, which was formerly part of GATX. And, and one of the benefits of that combination has been an expansion of the capacity of that fleet versus the two fleets operating separately. Um, Matt, I'm going to turn to you. Do you think there's any difference um, in assessing a potential investment depending upon the trading sector involved? I mean, they, we've, as we said at the beginning, this is a very diverse group of companies, right? We've got RAND on the Great Lakes. You've got complete river operators and also those who are ocean going all on the offshore space, either providing services or transport like a tanker or um, servicing offshore rigs, like in the Gulf, as Kevin mentioned before. Uh, is there a 
different focus when you're analyzing a different sector of this market? There just has to be. To, to your point, as, as you walked through, you heard four very different segments that logically have very different drivers of the revenues for each of them. What's great about the Jones Act sector is it is very niche. In everything you walked through, it's not a plethora of investment opportunities. There are tend to be several. They tend to be driven by the same drivers. So if you really get to know the river trade, then you really get to know how important ag or coal or some of the liquids that Kirby moves are. If you get to know the Great Lakes trade, you get to know what's important up there or the energy on the coast or the drilling. So each of those has very different drivers, but at the end of the day, they do represent very similar investments, I think, because they're protected trades with the Jones Act as kind of the halo above them. They're all US drivers ultimately that are impacting this. There are international grain trades, international energy trades, but they're US businesses. They tend to be a small, narrow set with pretty expensive capital equipment required. And so from a very high level, very similar. Obviously before anyone like Will or an investor in the asset class can get comfortable with writing a check, they do have to drill down and understand very different drivers across those segments. Thanks. Um, Kevin, do you have any, any views on that? Are there any sectors within, that, within this group that may be similar to each other and have the same driver, or are they really that diverse that you have to drill down into each one? No, they really are that diverse. I mean, I think it's it's diverse even within the, you know, the coastal tanker trade. What MRs move versus what a you know fifty thousand, eighty thousand barrel barge moves are are, you know, there's overlap clearly, but but they're different markets in and of themselves. Do you do you, um, Alice? I'm looking to you. Do you see this as a, a hindrance to possible consolidation among different sectors by a, by more than one company? Are, are mergers really going to be limited to tanker to tanker mergers or um, a, a barge operator buying up other barge operators? Or can these companies step outside of their lane? I think that one of the real benefits of consolidation and, and to Will's point is that it can actually leave the market in a better place. There's a tremendous amount of fixed overhead in operating a maritime business. Uh, we are extremely focused on safety in all of our operations, as an example. And maritime safety permeates regardless if you're moving different types of products. Now, your operations manual will certainly be different, but certain things around marine safety, Coast Guard relationships, classification societies, and a lot of the regulatory compliance and safety work that are imperative um, for us as, as part of our team and are really things that we are focused on in, in excellence, um, sharing that wisdom over a, a larger number of assets can help defray some of that fixed cost overhead. So I do believe that there is synergy. There are common relationships, there are common yards uh, that, that folks will work with and, and long-term relationships. Yes, customer bases are a little bit different. Uh, underlying markets are a little bit different, but understanding the maritime space, generally speaking, I think is good. And some, some examples of consolidation and roll-ups that have happened in the past include C-Corp, right? And, and their ability to have inland assets, tankers, they have tugs, they have ship assist. And so they have Caribbean operations. Um, that's just one example of folks have done it. Obviously, Kirby also has multiple arms of their business. And frankly, given cyclicality, 
it can be good to have different segments of a business. So when coal is off, green is up. When certain certain types of products are down, other types of products are up. One of, one of the key drivers in the coastwise tanker market is also the international flag. How cheap is it to import that same barrel? What what is the op, What are the alternatives of moving something Jones Act? And I think we spent a lot of time looking at global drivers as well, uh, and how those will have implications across the Jones Act. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to start with you on a different topic, and it's it's really about the um, the Jones Act itself. I mean, I, as as long as I've been practicing, and that's been since 1989, I've been going to conferences and hearing people saying that the Jones Act has to go away. It should go away. It will be going away. And um, it's it, it doesn't seem to me that it's going away at all, and it, it probably never will. Um, and there are really strict hurdles to entry into the market, um, which some people say stagnate the market and others say are a great thing because it keeps the market tight and the values up. Um, what's what's your view on that? Yeah, so, you know, one, when, when you know, we were making an intro foray into the Jones Act, you, yeah, you have to diligence the, the legislation itself and, and get comfortable with uh you know with the remaining in place just as, just as you know as, as a baseline for um evaluating opportunities and uh you know we've certainly done our diligence on that on that front and and, and have gotten comfortable there uh, as it pertains to uh you know what it provides to the market you know we, we view it as a valuable barrier to entry um and and helps and helps protect the 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 investment that that we've made given uh, the requirements, um, you know, as, as Alex and others had had uh, noted earlier, that the significant capital requirements required in order to 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 make a foray in, into into the markets. Uh, I think the the, the flip side uh, is what does that ultimately do? You know, as as we're sponsors, we're investing through a fund, and we ultimately need to, to exit. What does that do to the the landscape of of ultimate buyers? And next owners of, of uh, businesses that you've invested in, and so that that becomes a, a, a key consideration when making your initial investment of who could ultimately own this next. And 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 one thing that and and Matt would welcome your viewpoint uh, on on this as well is, you know, one thing that we've seen with a number of assets that we've that we've looked at, owned, um, and invested in is upon that that sale. You know, we're no longer pursuing the the wide marketed broad auction. You know, where where you're sending out books to 100 plus parties. It's more targeted, and and I think the Jones Act itself makes that effort more targeted, which then ultimately allows the parties looking at the the business next to to have more confidence and dig in, knowing that they're not going up against 100 other parties for 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 a uh, for an acquisition. Yeah, look, I think that's incredibly well put. Um, from having run auction processes extensively in the in the Jones Act, it's clearly a major issue as you go to market for a lot of private equity funds to get comfortable with the Jones Act structure. Ultimately, I think there's some great counsels out there. We have one on the phone with us now. Um, there are a lot of great legal advisors to help PE funds get comfortable and understand the requirements so that they can invest. There's some tools such as bringing US LPs alongside those private equity funds 
that can often allow a comfort level with the Jones Act, which allows for investment. But make no mistake, it is not a easy you know, uh, solution as it would be for most companies that are out there. The additional thing I think, which is separate is how safe is the Jones Act, which is a bit where you were heading, Chris. And I think the Jones Act has never been safer. When I think about what happened over COVID, it absolutely reinforced why the Jones Act is imperative. We had an inability in the US to get chips because they were manufactured elsewhere. We had an inability to get multiple items through the supply chain because the US no longer had that expertise. The idea of getting rid of the Jones Act, getting rid of the ability to build ships, getting rid of the ability to have mariners who are trained to operate in an environment where we're seeing nearshoring, where the US is realizing how important having domestic production of specific goods is. I've never felt more comfortable with the rationale for the Jones Act, the need for the Jones Act. And we don't see that being an issue whatsoever as we go to market. But back to Will's point, making sure that you're able as an investor to comply with the Jones Act is very important and is a hurdle that you have to overcome. Thanks, Matt. Um, Kevin, do you, do, you, uh, do you see these uh, barriers to investment more as just like a, a necessity for a, a learning curve for anybody that's coming to you for advice on investing in this space? Or do you see it as a hindrance to investment? Yeah, I, I do think it's more of a learning curve issue. I mean, you'll, you'll certainly encounter funds that don't have a proper setup for Jones Act ownership. Um, but that, that comes, you know, you, you, there are domestic companies in the U.S. that technically don't comply with the Jones Act just, just by dint of their other ownership structure. Um, so I think that's always going to be an element of due diligence anytime you, you have an M&A deal um, structurings as well. Uh, in, in the Jones Act, um, but I, I think I think Matt and Will put it well. It's it it, it focuses focuses the the uh, you know, investable universe, and when, when you're going out in a process, it focuses on who you're going to approach. Um, but it's something that I think everyone on this on this call is is very familiar with. Alex, uh, as a as an investor in the Jones Act space, do you see the exit issue that Will brought up as a as a hindrance to your investments or do you do you like this small group of people that you could potentially sell to? Uh, I think that there's a lot of structures that enable liquidity to come into the Jones Act and the Jones Act was designed um, to protect first, um, not to inhibit necessarily. And you know you have Jones Act vessels that are listed on international stock exchanges. Um, there are, are numerous ways for capital uh, to creatively find a way uh, home into the Jones Act. Uh, I, I do think, to Matt's point, it's, it's never been stronger, the Jones Act, and it really is an essential legislation to ensure our maritime readiness. And, and that can be broadly bucketed from a defense and making sure there's employment and as well as just commerce uh, keeps moving. But we have not seen an issue um, in a conventional sense, in an auction sense, yes, you're, you're probably not going to sell to a foreign sovereign wealth fund um, in, in this, just to be direct, but uh, there are certainly numerous ways for that investor to participate, right, and, and structurally sound. And so uh, we don't see exit as necessarily an option. Obviously, buying a portfolio of depreciating assets with some cyclicality is not for the faint of heart, uh, generally, and there's not that many people that invest in shipping. 
uh, we're in the tanker trade. There's not that many investors that uh, invest in long dated capital in tankers. We see that potentially as an opportunity if we're able to hold and cash flow these assets um, due to the rates and, and scarcity factors. So we like the space uh, and, and that's why we're here and we'll continue to stay in and around the Jones Act uh, opportunistically. Okay, thanks. We only have a, a couple of minutes left, so I'm gonna do a quick speed round. Uh, do, I'm gonna ask you all to answer this question, so just uh, give me your thoughts. Has the sector fully recovered from COVID? And if not, um, what do you think is going to happen over the next couple of years in relation to its recovery from the COVID situation? Will, you're up first. Yeah, I mean, maybe just with the relevant experience uh, with with our investment on the Great Lakes, it seems that you know COVID has has there there are certainly some hurdles with regards to crewing and 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 separating crews and dividing them up and making sure that everyone was um, you know was was isolated and safe. That that hurdle was was cleared, and and I and I frankly think that um, you know policies that were put in place are are helpful and and. Uh, able to be implemented going forward, but uh, the the lingering impact, I, I don't think it's been impacting operations. Matt, you share that view? I, I do. It, 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 it's impacted the Jones Act as it's impacted all of us, but I think like all of us, it's it's back to work and uh, the Jones Act's doing a great job as a sector. Okay. Uh, Kevin, I'll, I'll switch it up a little bit. Are there any other external factors, such as the war in Ukraine, that may be affecting this sector? Um, I don't think they that you know the, the, there's always going to be knock-on effects um, from from that. I, I do think there's probably more knock-on effects um, when it comes to you know the, the, the movement of crude and products. Um, that's a that's a much longer topic, <laughs> but that that certainly is you can see that effect on on some of the some of the assets in the in the Jones Act, particularly in the Gulf. Um, you know the other thing I I would touch on that's something that Matt mentioned a little earlier. Is is the, um, the the reduction of banks and capital debt capital available? Um, you know, there wasn't that long ago when you had significant amounts of European banks in the Jones Act space and lending to Jones Act companies, including in the offshore. Um, a lot of those have, have gone away. There are a few of the big players that are still around, um, but there are you know plenty of German banks, for example, that were lending inexpensively um, back in the two thousands and the and, and before that, that just are no longer interested or no longer there. Okay, thanks. Um, Alex, I'll, uh, I'll leave you for the last question before I wrap it up here. Um, what trends do you see in this sector in the next couple of years? I'm not asking you to you know, tell the future, but do you have anything on the horizon that you expect? Um, I would say that there is going to be a material energy transition and it's underway in this country. The Inflation Reduction Act really solidified that commitment uh, in Washington, D.C. And so it'll be very interesting to understand what the marine fuels of the future are, the depreciation and amortization curves around those technologies as they come into. And retrofitting vessels is a lot easier said than done oftentimes and the regulatory compliance bit. So I think one of the key things is how the Jones Act and, and broader international shipping market, the Jones Act, especially with longer life assets, transitions to alternative fuels, um, both in transportation uh, as well as consumption. 
So I think that's an area where, where we're spending a lot of time focused. Um, but you know, big, big things that we are, you know, hopeful uh, subside is inflation. Um, I think supply chain woes around getting certain parts, especially when you're operating an asset that could be 20 years old or older, 30 years old, that part may not be made anymore. So machine shops, otherwise inventories, I think the overhang from COVID for us, the, the hangover um, in inflation and in some of the supply chain and inventory um, and, and operating costs, I think we would like to see subside okay. and normalize. All right, well, thank you. I think that's, uh, I think we all share that. Uh, and uh, I think that about wraps this up. Thanks uh, to all of you, Will, Kevin, Matt, and Alex. I think this is really interesting and insightful and um, hopefully we'll see you all soon. And thanks, Nicholas. Thank and you. Have a link. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Thanks all. Thanks, Bye. Chris.